hey, Chris. Hey, John. Whew. Here we are at the end of a season. Yeah. I always feel sort of like we did it when we make it to this point. What about you? Uh, yeah, we did something, but, you know, they are the ones who did it. Oh, yeah, they did it. But I just mean for me, the close watching, the note taking, the making sure that things are happening in a somewhat timely fashion, that side of engaging with the show. I don't do this with any other television show. And as much as I enjoy theorizing about things like Fargo or Twin Peaks or Game of Thrones or whatever it might be, I'm sort of glad that I'm not also podcasting about them because it would become exhausting. <laughs> right. And we made it through the season of podcasting. So. Um, and oddly enough, though, our network did not really make it through the season. So as we record this, it's a kind of a funny situation. I don't really know how people are going to be hearing this, if they're going to be hearing it as part of the usual uh, Saul Searching feed that has existed since the show began, or if there's going to be some new home for it, or what. I really, I really don't know. All I can say to anyone listening is... The way to track Saul Searching into the future uh, and to know what we're up to and to know when we're back, follow us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching. I will probably say it again at the end of the episode. It's really important because after this, I don't really know what the next step is going to be. So follow us on Twitter. If you're listening, hoping that we'll be there with you for every episode of Better Call Saul. I think that's our plan, too. We're kind of obsessive completists. And right now, I really want it to be a full set when you take the long view. So I don't know if I've said anything that you don't agree with in that little spiel, but do you want to add anything? No, I just will, um, like you, fingers crossed, we'll figure out a good uh, place to uh, host this and uh, move all the files over there so people can hear it all in one place or something. I don't know how hard that is, but, uh, or, or what the possibilities are. If you want to know what's going on with the future of this podcast, please follow us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching. So I guess that's all the business that needs to be mentioned before we get into the season finale. Lantern, episode 10, written by Jennifer Hutchison and directed by series co-creator. And I always like to mention pretty much Saul Goodman creator, Peter Gould, because he was the guy that wrote the episode that introduced Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad. How did you feel about Lantern just as an installment of the ongoing story? I liked it a lot. I just found it... Um entertaining based on the the number of, of real developments things going on where you say wow that happened that was that was something that really happened <laughs> and so uh it was a i don't know if i call it a blockbuster episode but for chuck it had you know several things that you could call blockbusters and it had some other you know uh big developments well you just reminded me that uh in an interview i read recently peter gould said when they asked him one word to describe this episode, he said blockbuster was the one word that came to his mind. And I thought he was talking about like events within the episode. But now that we've seen it, we can see that he was probably being coy uh, and cutesy and referring to the fact that there's a scene that takes place in a blockbuster video. Oh, right. Maybe so. I did have this moment of doing the math and going, yep, yeah, this is 2003. You would have gone to the video store still. Yeah. Let's move on to our actual kind of character by character breakdowns. Uh, I guess I'll start just by saying uh, the lesser of all the characters in the finale was the character who didn't show up at all, and that would be our pal Mike Ermintrout. You know, when you think back, you can easily say, all right, the yeah, the, the writers decided that the uh, big momentous end for Mike for this season is that he gets uh, fully involved in a almost, you know, normal employment feeling situation with Gus. And now we're done. You know, it's like that's that's the point we brought him to at the end of the season. But I suppose we can move on from Mike to the characters that were actually on this episode. 
We start with Kim in the hospital, and they are bandaging up her broken arm, and she's all banged up. And Jimmy comes in, and he's clearly stricken. All the bullshit goes away when there's something real to deal with in life. Yep. And they both kind of they both behave like grownups that cared about each other yep. in that moment. Yep. And and I liked seeing that Kim was comfortable leaning on Jimmy up to a point. How did you take that that part of the story and? And were, were you as pleased as me to see that it didn't result in her basically telling him to fuck off or him trying to manipulate her or anything gross? Right. No, it was good. It was it was very real life. You do rush to the side of the person who needs help and then just try to do everything you can do. And there's a lot of stuff you can't do. And and uh, and he kind of just turns into a nice nurse. And that's that's cool. But, um, uh, you know, he also says uh uh, I'll take care of things, or 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 whatever he says. I'll you know I'll do whatever I have, whatever I have to do, um, regarding money and ongoing matters, and uh, and that sets you up to wonder what all is is going to come next. Says he'll fix things. That's what he says. Yes, yes, I made a note of that too because in the past she has said, "You don't save me, I save me," and we've also seen. What happens when Jimmy tries to fix things? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It, it, and as a matter of fact, later in this episode, he says, I'm not so good at fixing things. I'm better at breaking them up or, you know, however he phrases it. His exact line, which was so beautiful, uh, was, um, I'm not good at building shit. I'm excellent at tearing it down. <laughs> right. He's not trying to do an end run around Kim at this point. He right. doesn't seem to be lying to her. And Kim seems to be behaving like someone who really has a lot on her plate and a lot to think about, but also a human being who's got to do some some healing you know and yeah. and that means more than just physically like she she was at the end of her rope for a handful of reasons but seeing her sort of take responsibility for her choices deliberately and and literally saying i'm an adult i made a choice this episode did a really good job of reinforcing what we've been sort of supposing about her which is that these decisions are hers and she knows they are so she's not blaming jimmy um but she's also sort of aware of who jimmy is you know, she's not quite running scams with him, but she seems to be like when she's giving him advice about the whole sandpiper thing or talking to him about that. It doesn't seem like she's in the dark as to what happened. It seems like she's. No, that was fascinating to find out that she knew all the details of this and that he was talking it out with her. That was pretty wild. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is it hints at, to me, a brighter future for their relationship. They seem almost more together than ever to me in this episode. They seemed like uh, as as self-aware and and aware of each other as they've ever seemed as a couple. Right, and they're not normally very affectionate. We don't see them. I mean, there's a stint through the whole middle of the season, you know, where I was like, are they still boyfriend and girlfriend? They seem to, we get a vague hint once in a while that they live together, you know, (laughs) but the way they talk is like like co-workers practically, and, uh, you know, they don't come in and out and have a peck on the cheek or anything. Um, But in this one, you had a lot of hand-holding and everything, and... and, uh, Making breakfast and all just makes you really feel like, yes, they're a strong couple. They just uh, are kind of stoic with their their feelings. But she had that. I, this also was, uh, yeah, a little plot for her of, uh, okay, Kim overworks herself, runs off the road and has a wreck, and then has a moment of reflection where she really had that that frozen moment this episode where she, she kind of— uh, stared into space for a bit but while she was trying to reorganize her calendar and then said, no, it's too much. Do you think Kim's devil-may-care attitude was fueled in any way by thinking Jimmy has a cool million coming in? Oh, probably a little bit. But they didn't later have her reacting differently when when it seems that that is going to be a deferred, delayed, whatever 
situation, um, which again, right. we'll get to that. She's in a bit, not but. consciously saying, I'm taking into account that we've got a bunch of money coming, but I bet that it's it's definitely, you know, on the table a little bit when she thinks, can I take a break? She's probably thinking, just feeling like, yes, I can probably take a break. So what did you think of Kim's movie selections? She had Monty Python and, and To Kill a Mockingbird queued up. Yes, we didn't hear which Monty Python, but of course, those are both uh, indicators that... Uh, She's a movie buff. Those are great movies, and Jim Jimmy's a movie buff. They they bond on that, I'm sure. On To Kill a Mockingbird, I, I loved the the moment where she said, uh, uh, you know, Atticus Finch uh, wants to do right and save the world, and and uh, you know, didn't you have that too as a kid? And Jimmy's expression is just kind of you know for a moment there, like, wow. Um, have you ever watched this show? You know me at all? You know he he just kind of and has to go. Uh, yeah, that's that was more Chuck's department. That was quite a question on on her part. I thought it was interesting that the clients weren't jumping ship. I think it's yet another place where they gave Kim agency. She didn't lose the Gatwood account because of what happened. She chose to refuse their business and to send it on to someone else. Right, even though she missed the meeting and all the people were going to be there and everything. Right, they still were like, oh, here's some flowers. We hope you can. Make it, you know, next week or whatever. If you were impressed with her before that, you would not be um, suddenly unimpressed with her because she had had an accident. Like, that's not that's not a reflection on her as a lawyer. But I did think, is, is it going to be her struggling to keep her clients now that she's injured? And they kind of dealt with that by saying, no, Kim is so solid that people remember her good work for them. And and you don't you don't throw away a good lawyer who's working hard for you and is clever, you know. I wasn't clear on that because I didn't know about, you know, if there were supposed to be some deadlines in the story, if they were supposed to say, yeah, but we had to have this meeting on Tuesday because Wednesday is the hearing of the, you know, the uh, the deadline for the for the papers, you know, or whatever that uh, yeah. that they would say. And therefore, we had to get another lawyer and, and that uh, Mesa Verde could still do the same thing. You know, next season they could say, yeah, Kim, it's been three weeks and you've been watching movies and we, we missed uh, – some uh, paperwork and we didn't get to open another branch. Well, she even said she's busy helping a mid-sized local bank become a mid-sized regional bank. <laughs> right, right, which does make you say that could be a clue that um, she's going to have some more interesting agency uh, uh, next season. You know, she could strike out and say, I'm, I've got a new idea. I've got a, a different thing to pursue, you know, but who knows? It's Yeah, it's just wide open. And there's another huge thing that everyone's going to be dealing with at the beginning of next season that uh, we'll get to in a bit that is surely going to be the the first priority of season four is going to be dealing with with um, the things that happen at the very end of the episode. Do you think it was kind of an interesting twist that when, when they finally have to let Francesca go and she's leaving, she seems to be much more affectionate towards Kim than she is towards Jimmy. And when he says, I'll call you, if, if if I ever need to hire someone again, and she has this like yeah whatever kind of attitude towards Jimmy, <laughs> yeah. But she's into Kim, and it's like we know Jimmy's going to make good on that offer at some point, right? You know, look at the period of Jimmy that she saw compared to the period of Kim, right? I didn't think much about it, but it seemed very natural because here you've got a high functioning lawyer who has just broken her arm, so of course you're going to be focused on oh, I hope you, everything's okay for you, and you're great, and you've got another guy who just got suspended, and who makes you answer the phone in tricky ways. <laughs> and so you're going to you're going to be like, "Okay, uh, nice to meet you Jimmy, I'll see you around." Once again, the show leaves us in a place where we're saying, "Oh, we thought we were seeing Jimmy and Francesca form this bond that's going to keep going forward." 
But actually, there's another step for them. There's still another link in the chain of their relationship where he has to call her and bring her back in. Right. It's just like all the other delayed gratification they've been doing with all these other things. And I really do think once they bring someone in like Francesca and realize they've got something, there's something going on with that character, I think it, they immediately say, oh, let's let's delay the gratification then. Let's How can we delay the gratification <laughs> with Francesca? Yeah. In her case, it's let's have it be that she could really kind of take or leave Jimmy at the end of this season. You know, yeah, which makes it especially funny to know that later Saul Goodman is is coming on to her and saying lascivious things. But it's also necessary to lose her when you lose the office, I guess. Um, well, maybe they could have sort of kept her as some assistant or something. But, you know, it seems like more likely they may have just said, um, let's get this breakthrough where they lose the office. That's an important turn. We're going to put that at the end of season three. And, well, I guess that means he'd got to let Francesca go and, and bring her back whenever he gets a new office. So moving on to the crime world, I guess, there's a few characters that are just kind of lumped in together. We've got Nacho. We've got Hector. We've got Gus. Uh, they're all intertwined in this episode. There's there's a couple of very chilling moments, I thought, in this in this storyline. And we're left at a moment that I think we expected we would be left with, which would be... You know, we see Hector have what seems like the incident. In this episode, I was watching Nacho when he was prowling around with the gun, laying in wait for Hector, you know? Yeah. And I was thinking like, wait, I guess I'm okay with that. But I'm not crazy about it that we spent three episodes building up to a, a wet fart of a plot. I was at the edge of being one of those people who goes, man, this show's too slow paced. You know, right when they hit me within the scene, and you start to go, oh, this moment is becoming much more of a moment. It's not a moment about Nacho trying some last-ditch effort to do something to Hector that we know doesn't work. We know Hector doesn't get shot. Um, At least we believe we know that. And then it happens. Characters start showing up. uh, And I love the way that Nacho instantly has a cover because he's standing there and he's wondering how he's going to explain his presence there. And then the guy says, oh, good, you got my call. It was like, that couldn't have worked out better for Nacho in that moment. Right. What did you think of all that? And were you like me sort of tricked into thinking that maybe they had they had led us down a, a sort of a, a fool's path uh, with the um, nacho scheme? Well, when they start out the episode and he is thinking, all right, I'm, I'm about to shoot Hector. I knew that they weren't just going to throw out the pill replacement scheme because they have just spent too much time on it and it's too cool and interesting. But it was a cool way to show you oh, wow, Nacho has given up on that, and he's really thinking, screw it, maybe that's not working, and it's getting too close to my dad, and I guess I'll just shoot Hector to death right now. You know, so that was cool to show you Nacho's uh, thought process, that he had had given up, you know. Um, But then that doesn't work, and then seemingly the uh, uh, pill gambit does work, but then you've got Gus looking on. And the implications of that, that Gus knows Nacho was doing something there. Right. They made a point of Gus seeing Nacho picking up the pills. Yeah. Gus jumps in uh, to help Hector. And I'm thinking, like, is this all? Is this more for appearances in front of Bolsa? Mm-hmm. Or is this, is this Gus actually doing the thing that we know is somewhere in his mind, which is keeping Hector alive for some greater retribution down the road? Right. Maybe he is like, no, I don't want to see him die right now, and I don't want to... Uh... Nacho to have killed him. I want to kill him. Uh, or maybe he really is just thinking, this is what you do. Or, yeah, Bolsa is standing here. Or But hadn't Bolsa left? Fring said, get out of here. Like, basically, Fring took care of right, him. Right, and so he could see, okay, he's going to try to 
help him here and stay here. So that is still possibly just for appearances. But um, Nacho seemed to have plenty of time, kind of, kind of, you know, picking up the pills and backing off while they're working on Hector. That you think, oh, he he might have had plenty of time to switch the pills back and so on. But yeah, Gus is looking on, and you know, we don't know for sure that he's thinking, oh, something's up with these pills, or that guy's got a special thing going on with the pills, or 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 maybe just mm, that guy doesn't seem too upset, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, whatever the case is, the look on his face tells you something is in his mind. Maybe it's just as as inconsequential as, huh? I like this. Uh, young guy seems like a go-getter maybe i can get him secretly on my side but even that is 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 something my impression was that it worked out as far as nacho's end of it is that when he handed over the pill bottle it was with the real pills back in it yeah that i think that he was able to switch them back although it did make me think does that mean nacho's been walking around with that pill changer gadget in his pocket this whole time i don't know yeah i think he keeps the extra well it's just a it's a fancy pill box he should just carry tic tacs as well so that people think that's what he's got in his pocket or something well we've learned that in this universe Pills don't really rattle that much. You can you can oh, toss a bottle right. into a pocket and no one would hear it. Therefore, it's not like a Tic Tac uh, situation. Also, I just wanted to at least give a nod to how menacing and loathsome Hector was when he showed up at the upholstery shop. He couldn't just come in and like meet Nacho's dad or nod at him across the room and have this be happening. He had to go in there and stand face to face with him and put the money on the counter and have the guy accept it and have this weird power trip. It was creepy and gross. And sure enough, at the end of the scene, the way he says, I don't trust him. It's so cold, and in his world and in that context, that statement means so much. Like, Nacho knows exactly what Hector's communicating to him when he says, I don't trust him. He means, well, we're now doing business with your father, and I don't trust him, so he's as good as dead, basically. Right. Uh, this, this, when you have this person in, in cahoots with you and not trusting you, that just means you're in total danger of getting killed at any moment if he feels like it. If that's the last like truly loathsome uh, act we see a walking, talking Hector Salamanca commit, it it just furthers that impression that he you know he deserved it. <laughs> he deserved uh, his fate in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, he's the most um, flatly villainous character of of the show because uh, you know everybody probably came into the show thinking Howard's a villain, Chuck's a villain, you know, but they're normal people, <laughs> and this guy. The only thing we've seen with Hector is we have, you know, seen enough to understand how he feels slighted, but yeah. he is much, much meaner in return than any slight that he's received. Where do you see this storyline going forward? Do you see a Gus and Nacho relationship that could be really interesting? And then that dovetails with the fact that Gus now has Mike working for him, and we know that Mike has at least some modicum of appreciation for Nacho as a as a complicated human being, you know, and not just, not just a thug. I like everything that you just said, but I have no idea. So I, I would say that all sounds like a, a, a fun and cool guess, but um, they haven't really given us any, uh, any, any good clues as to where we're, how, how all those characters are going to get jumbled together. Let's get into the, um, I guess we can refer to it as kind of the Brothers McGill section of the show, but we can also involve Howard in this because Howard continued to be a major player in the plot and have like a big moment, if not one of the biggest moments of the episode, I thought, in this episode was was Howard's behavior and his way of handling Chuck in the early scenes. Um, let's start with Jimmy and deal with that, and then we'll deal with the 
the other part of it. Okay. We've already talked a lot about his relationship with Kim in this episode. Yeah. And how he serves as a very good support system for her or seemingly a very good, very healthy, uh, you know, a good boyfriend, basically, uh, is, is a huge chunk of his storyline. And then Jimmy also is is trying to be a good guy in the other part of his storyline, too, which is going to Chuck with this mea culpa or the closest thing you're going to get to a mea culpa from, from Jimmy towards Chuck at this point. Um, and his feelings about Irene and having hurt her and not liking that. So I feel like we see throughout this episode, we're reminded of Jimmy's humanity. We've been sort of disappointed with Jimmy lately. And and this was an episode that turned a lot of that around for me. And again, left me with that general warm feeling I have that this is a guy who's trying somehow to, to not cause too much damage. Right. They totally uh, turned him around and redeemed him. I think they, they you know wanted to say that uh, Kim's wreck... Uh, you know, makes him reevaluate what's important in life and so on. And so, of course, he goes to Chuck and says, could we be brothers again? But to me, when he went back to Irene's to get the scoop, I really didn't think that was connected to what happened with Kim or anything at all. I just felt like he was being genuinely curious that everything worked out for her, you know, because he, in my mind, he, 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 pulled this trick on Irene thinking, well, she'll have a rough passage with her friends, but she'll get back on track with them and I won't have been hurting her that bad. You know, that's why I didn't see it as as hurtful as you saw it, because I thought that in his mind, this will be a temporary bump in the road for her. But that then he learned, oh, no, they still are holding her at at arm's length. And uh, this is a permanent damage I've done to this woman. And that's when he made a huge sacrifice for him and said, I've got to go back and I'm not going to get my million dollars sooner. I'm going to get it later just so that I can make sure that she, that, that, that some cute old lady is friends with some other cute old ladies. (laughs) This show invites you to consider the real human toll of that, which is if you did that and you know, if, if, if let's say if there was some old lady you were friends with and you did that, you manipulated her, it would be the most horrible thing I'd ever heard of that you had done. And it would make me question you as a man. Yes. So I'm saying, I I don't care if he thought, oh, it'll all work out. He Uh still is like playing chess with people, you know? And I think that's what, that's what I don't like to see my friend Jimmy McGill do. Right. And yet that's what you also get a weird visceral charge of watching that snake uh, Saul Goodman do. But it is great that he made such good amends when when he got Aaron to, to uh, come in on his, his uh, open mic, his hot mic scheme, and uh, he just totally threw it away just to, to make it good. There was that moment where you see him think of the scheme that's going to reunite Irene with her friends, right. you know, and you, and he goes, it's like a little kid not wanting to do his homework. He goes, uh, I yep. know what to do, but I don't want to do it. Uh. Yeah. And that was based on what we just said uh, about, um, uh, you know, he was inspired when, when he said, I don't know how to, how to build things. I just know how to break them down or however he said it. That's when he realized, what can I break down that can, that can put Irene and her friends back together? Oh, of course, I have to, I have to let them see uh, that I'm a rat and break break down my own uh, uh, facade with them, uh, and that'll put them back together. Yeah, and we saw some element of that on the horizon. I think we talked about it after the episode where he was laying on his back on the on the community service worksite, and you know he was counting the money. We basically said that 
Saul Goodman's superpower in a way is he's getting something done and he his secret weapon is not caring if when he walks out of the room everyone goes god I hate that guy <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> And somehow he can live with that. Like maybe because he's had that his whole life, maybe because his own brother has sort of hated him in a way, maybe because he's got a persecution complex, whatever. Maybe there's something self-congratulatory about that. But at this point, the the you know edging into middle-aged version of Jimmy that we are following, he's he's got this lifetime of regret and things that he doesn't feel great about, but he's always sort of sublimated it as the world's full of people who are going to screw you if you don't screw them. You know, But the weight of that has become something different on him. And the fact that he's essentially still a lovable guy somehow within that doesn't hide the fact that he he knows what it means to like get what you want despite nobody being happy for you that <laughs> that you got what you wanted. Yeah. And I think the fact that he's willing to live with that it does kind of give him a kind of 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 armor. Of course, it's very momentous too that they uh, killed off his connection with the oldsters, and he was ready to throw away his Rolodex and everything. Because um, he knows that he's not going to, you know, he's going to be a pariah in that community when this gets around. And it uh, reminds me, just a few weeks ago we were talking, and I can't remember exactly what you had said, but you said that you had heard some writer, I guess, of the show talking about the, uh, just the mechanics of how they build the characters. Well, the, the big quote that I always remember uh, that sticks in my mind is that Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan are both fond of saying that the big question of the show is what problem does becoming Saul Goodman solve? That's right. And that made me say that his problem is he doesn't have any clients. He, therefore, he can't get the, the current clients he has. So so we're going to have to do something to get rid of him. Well, I mean, there's a lot of Saul building happening in this episode. There is um, that very literal thing of how can how does Jimmy McGill go from the elder care specialist to to this other field of law, so to speak. A criminal, criminal lawyer. And it, it was something that they, I guess they kind of needed to take like a scorched earth policy to, to say he can't do that anymore. When he comes becomes a lawyer again, not only does he not have those clients, but the name Jimmy McGill has been soiled by what he's done. And I would say one of the other huge parts that fits into that idea is that what Chuck says to him, and he's kind of teasing Jimmy in a way by saying, why do you bother with regrets at all? When Jimmy comes over with what we know to be a relatively sincere Apology, but we also know that Jimmy has done this before, you know, screwed up and said, come on, let's be brothers, yeah. you know. And so Chuck is not being factually wrong when he says, Jimmy, this is what you do. Yeah. You screw up and you hurt people and then you say you're sorry. So I think that he's trying to say things that will hurt Jimmy in that moment. Yeah. But he's in a place where he is kind of lashing out at a lot of things, and yet he's not really admitting to himself that he's doing it. So I don't know if Chuck knows what he's doing in that moment. Jimmy left Chuck's with this idea of, why regret anything at all? Just be yourself. You're a slime ball. He said something like, I would actually respect you more if you were honest with yourself about who you are. Maybe after Chuck's likely demise, um, uh, Jimmy is going, what was one of the last things he said to me? Maybe he'll think a little bit more about some of those words that Chuck said and try to pull some actual advice out of it. And if there is any actual advice for Jimmy in that moment, it is be true to yourself. I mean, on some level, you could say Chuck is giving Jimmy support by saying that. Of course, it's so twisted and, and dark that it doesn't really qualify as support. Right. And Chuck always gives this mean support and it never works on Jimmy. And he also says, you'll never change and you've never mattered to me all that much. And so I think that what Jimmy could take, uh, you know, if Chuck is indeed dead, what Jimmy can be left with 
possibly is nobody cares that much about me. Why should I care that much about anybody? Nobody, uh, you know, if I never mattered to my own brother. But we know that he has Kim. We know that that matters to him. Right, right. So like right now he still has that. Yep. But we have to think about his mind state going over there. Like Kim gets hurt. Next time we see him after dealing with Kim's predicament and helping her out, he's in the car at Chuck's place, you know, debating whether to go in. He finally decides to go in. He wants to just see how Chuck's doing. He seems genuinely impressed with his brother's recovery. He does that sort of, I'm sorry if I offended you style of apology just a little bit. Yeah. The sort of, there are things I might do differently if I could go back. Right. But Chuck so rejects that and then says that insanely hurtful thing. You know, the exact quote is, um, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but the truth is you've never mattered that much to me. And we know that can't even be true because clearly so much of what Chuck has done is motivated by, you know, trying to hurt Jimmy. Um or trying to reform Jimmy, maybe, if you want to be mm -hmm. as charitable as possible. Right, right, trying to help him in his way. But I think he's just trying to get rid of Jimmy. He's, he's like, uh, he's mad enough at Jimmy that he does not want him in his life, you know? So he's saying the meanest thing he can say. Right, and then Jimmy leaves hurt, unbelievably hurt. And that's really the last we see of the two brothers together. And then the next time we see Jimmy, he's visiting Irene. And so clearly, whereas I think you're right that he is just kind of checking on her, I do think it's part of the chain of Jimmy's conscience driving him to sort of try to put things right, you know, and he kind of overdoes it. And you can tell it's not really working. Like Irene is happy to see him, but she's not as giggly and sweet about like the balloons and the treats. And it's just he can tell something's wrong. And then that preys on him. And then we see how Kim sort of advises him through that next phase. And then, yes, he does the brilliant chair yoga scheme with the hot mic uh, gambit, which is the cheesiest thing in the world when it happens by accident. But using uh, like an old movie trope almost mm -hmm. is something that feels right in line with Jimmy's scams. And I like that Aaron shows up and takes part in that. It was nice getting uh, her back on the show for just a minute. Yeah. And their, and their exchange was great, the way that she doesn't let him off the hook. She says, I meant every word that I said. And they had mentioned that she was in charge of the Sandpiper thing and uh, so it's all very wrapped up. Then, yes, we're left with Jimmy doing the right thing or the the rightest thing he could do in the situation, which is to take the brunt of, of the negativity himself and spare sweet little Irene, who didn't seem to hate him at the end, really seemed more like she was disappointed in him, you know. Um, the other women seemed much more like Jimmy sucks because they're, they're, it seems like Rose, Myrtle, and Helen are a little bit more mean-spirited than Irene is. But Irene kind of looked at him with a tisk-tisk kind of Jimmy, you know, sort yeah. of face, and then leave. So I could almost see, you know, maybe somewhere down the road, Saul Goodman and Irene uh, could have a conversation that isn't just acrimonious. <laughs> but um, I don't think that, I think, yes, the greater point that he's not, the, all that fun we had watching him be charming with old people, they did a great job of putting that to bed but in a way that was less dark and sad than I felt at the end of last week. Like this week, Jimmy's heart still carried the day. Yep. And I think that was a great way to handle that. But it just keeps making me think that we can have a version of Saul that is not all bad, you know? And I think that's really tantalizing. Right, because again, it's a, it's a backslide for if you're looking for him to fall morally further and further down a pit, you know, he, he came back up from last week. Well... We can expect that when we return to this world, the characters will all be dealing with Chuck's fate. What do you think of that particular aspect before we dive into the particulars of his storyline this episode? I think they're killing him. It would be kind of odd after that to do that and then for the writers to say, yeah, no, let's not kill him. Let's have him be a burn victim or just a guy whose house burned down or, or, 
or whatever, you know, it's not impossible that they'll do that, but I feel like the smartest, boldest thing for them to do now is say, yes, we killed him, and that's a huge turning point for Jimmy, and we get to go forward from here. The beginning of the episode was this really sweet, very simple, extremely short flashback to their childhood days, and it was a callback to the beginning of this season where The Adventures of Mabel, a book that we know the Brothers McGill had an attachment to from childhood, is actually being read by Chuck to Jimmy in a tent in, a, in the backyard. And the um, backyard is like strewn with junk, and it made me think of yeah. the state of Chuck's house when he yeah. uh, seemingly uh, attempts suicide at the end of the season. But it was it was a sweet moment, and it showed a moment where Jimmy is getting caught up in the story, and he's a little bit more worried about what might happen and whether things are bad and whether this is scary. And Chuck is very sweet and gentle, saying, just listen, and you'll see. Yep. Then we pull in on a, on a little lantern that they're using out in, the, uh, out in the tent. And, you know, that makes you think of the name of the episode being Lantern, which we've been speculating about for a while, that it's, it was very, very clear to me that... The lantern we think about when we think about this show is Chuck's lantern, and and you agreed with that. We we disagreed a little bit whether they were going to have to pay off some uh, Chekhov's gun sort of storyline with the lantern being mm-hmm. a real driving part of the episode. But I didn't think they'd be able to resist having something big happen in this episode, and it seems like the the name of the episode is a great way to to hint at, you know, in a benign way that doesn't tell you too much. Right, and you basically called it. You said you know you were very worried that the he was going to burn the house down or something, and sure enough, it's uh, all about that at the end. But in the cold open, I was uh, fascinated with, with Chuck's voice, which I guess was Michael McKean trying to do a 14-year-old's voice and them trying to maybe help him electronically, And because maybe they just got some kid with a kid voice who somehow sounded just like Chuck in, in some eerie ways. No, that was uncanny. That was uncanny. Like, um, I turned to Nikki and said, that kid has to be related to Michael McKean, right? Because he looked like him and sounded like him. Right. It could be his grandson. But it shows us Chuck at a moment of being a sweet, normal older brother and Jimmy being a sweet, normal little kid. And it is like this little clue to me that, okay, something major is going to happen between the brothers in this episode. Because this is otherwise, why would you give such a little tiny snippet that doesn't tell its own story that basically just says they were such sweet boys once? Yep. With Chuck, what I saw this episode was just his world getting smaller and smaller to the point where when Jimmy leaves, I was going like, well, what does Chuck have now? I don't know. I just felt like seeing it all get stripped away from him was really painful. And it, it all started with that scene where he's in the meeting with Howard and the partners. And he's doing his usual thing of being like the smug know-it-all who has all the answers and he's kind of running the room. He doesn't even seem to realize that it's not really working. And then Howard says, can you all give us the room for a moment? And you're left with this moment where Chuck tries to be Chuck with Howard and Howard's not having Chuck anymore, you know, and he calls bullshit on him, literally. Yep. Howard just nails him on that. Um that Chuck was really only thinking of himself when he decided to sue the firm. Yeah. And seeing the way Chuck reacted in that moment, you realize that Chuck McGill is this person whose pride and his mental illness are so wrapped together in such a sad way that he really can't extract himself. Everything he says to Jimmy about, you really can't change. And you're just going to keep hurting people because you're this way. It could be said back to Chuck. Mm -hmm. There was something so uncomfortable and sad about Howard announcing to the whole firm 
that Chuck is leaving and the way that Chuck can't take any pleasure in that. And you witness it on his face. And Howard doesn't even stick around for the for the applause to die out. He just kind of says goodbye to Chuck and watches him leave. But if you watch Michael McKean's face in that scene where he's walking down the stairs, you know, he's not like he quite has a breakdown. He doesn't cry. He doesn't have one of his episodes. But you get this feeling that, like, Chuck realizes that I'm about to leave this place and it's going to go on without me. And I just sort of made myself a pariah. To me, this was all Chuck being Chuck and... uh and then just running into the end of the road with what that brings you, you know. Um, uh, he he thought he had Howard over a barrel, and Howard uh, kind of wins a chess match with him by saying, "I'll I'll, uh, I'll just pay you nine bucks, nine million dollars out of my own pocket," and Chuck is left with nothing that he can do or say, and then. I do think that, like you're talking about, the big ceremony where everybody gives him a huge applause and sees him out was just like a major, major thing to Chuck's psyche. And, uh, you know, because here everybody's clapping and acting like you're so great while he knows I've just been forced out of this place and I feel like breaking down and crying, but I just have to manage to walk out of here to the car and doesn't say a word, you know, I, I think that that had to be devastating for him and and hugely contribute to his uh, breaking down to his allergy and, and uh, attempted suicide. We actually kind of wallowed in the very worst aspects of Chuck's character last night right. before he kicked that lantern off the desk. That just feels so gutsy and weird and like such a real exploration of this character. I was impressed at how much they stuck the landing of saying, no, Chuck was a self-defeating, slightly villainous character. You know, Jimmy's going to remember his last exchange with him being this horrible moment. And it's like it adds pathos to it, even though the character is being treated in a, in a really unsentimental way. Yeah, they sent him so far down into his electricity allergy craze. And you wonder, I always thought we might get more insight into what brought that on the first time he got it. And uh you know whether whether it had a lot to do with Jimmy we do see him lose it and it was uncomfortable and it did make you sad and it did make you think of the the Francis Ford Coppola film the conversation if you've seen that movie mm-hmm. you know you just have a guy who's tearing apart his home in in the conversation it's Gene Hackman right. as Harry Call pulling apart his apartment because he's convinced that he's being bugged well, it's similar too to that time Mike tore apart the whole car trying to find a bug but think about the way Mike tore apart the car with a methodical kind of grace out in the out in the junkyard and right. laid things out and then had this epiphany of where the, the tracer could be. Yeah. Whereas Chuck just starts going crazy. I mean, it's it definitely was a descent into madness on yeah. Chuck's part. Yeah. And knowing the name of the episode, I started to go, oh, no. I just had this general feeling that we're seeing Chuck's final descent and not a moment that he can rebound from. And then that last shot with the flames when they start to lick up. And it's just silent. There's no sound at all. That was just so uh, so sad when they start coming yeah. up. And so just terrifying, too, because you think of being in that room and possibly just sitting there and going like, oh, I'm just going to keep sitting here. Death by self-immolation is about one of the worst, most painful seeming deaths that you could ever set up for yourself. Well, and the way he knocks the lantern off without knocking it off, he just keeps bumping it just 
bumping his foot on the desk so that the lantern can f- eventually fall off as if maybe he's thinking they'll be able to see where everything is and they'll call it an accident. I think that was just a, a like a mental break where he's just sitting there and he's just like, Gung, just repeating this action. He's yep. basically given up on life and he kind of knows what he's about to do, but he's not really thinking. He's just kind of catatonic, yeah. you know, like there's something just not quite there. But you don't know how much he's thought ahead, like, I want this to look like an accident, or if he's just thinking, oh, I just realized I don't care if this lantern falls and burns up the house, and so I'm going to keep bopping it and see if it does. You know, you might be right. I guess it's hard for me to picture him being enough in his right mind to be thinking of how it looks, but for me, it's just all about that sad, lonely last moment. It's so final and so definitive of a moment, but it also leaves you open to so many possibilities. We've already discussed that we generally think... Um, he's dead. It would be uh, sort of anti-dramatic at this point to have him be alive in a way. And also it's just time to change things up maybe on this show. And they've explored the brothers McGill and their relationship so much that now they've basically given us all the keys to how Chuck inspires and sets Jimmy up to be Saul Goodman. Also, it'd be strange for him to be alive because we just had Kim in a car wreck and then to have him be in a fire, which he survives, like, the next episode. You know, it seems like a goofy thing that they would not set up. They've done such a great job of giving him a, a big arc and, a, and what could be a, a really good ending and a great setup for something that affects uh, Jimmy really hard, you know. So for them to now soft-pedal that and say, no, he's alive, he's a burn victim, you have to take care of him, you know, that, that all seems like um, too... Too realistic and slow and soft pedally, but I don't put it past them that they might do it. That you know, if they're in the writers' room and they say, "Yeah, but if we have Chuck alive, we can do this and this and this, and here's some cool ideas," and that they like it, they all do it. Well, any parting thoughts on uh, season three? How do you think it stacks up to the other two seasons of the show? I liked it. It was probably my favorite season. Care to elaborate? No. (laughs) (laughs) We ended season two going. Gosh, we kind of ended up in the same place that we ended season one. You know, like it didn't feel like we had made a a good leap forward and we had gone into a cul-de-sac and come back out. And I don't feel that way now ending season three. I feel like, hey, we have made progress. We're moving right along and it's a fun story to watch. Yes, I, I, I liked it quite a bit. And I think once again, I just come away thinking that the writing is so good and the acting is so good. And every time I hear the actors talk about that, they all say that it's easy when the writing is this good. So I just am willing to believe that this is a rare occasion where there's a lot of people that are bringing out each other's best and that it does occasionally take what could be boring content in other people's hands and make it really interesting, whether it's for a cinematic purpose or because you're so invested in the character. Um, but I think it's one of the... One of the best shows on television. There is a part of me that wants to fast forward and just be able to watch all of it so I don't have to go through the torture of, of you know, these these people who love to create a slow burn. They're, they're exacting about it, and they know how to make it a super slow burn. Well, I think we covered everything I wanted to touch on, except I did have a thought where uh, I wanted to compare Chuck to Charles Crumb. If you've ever watched a documentary about R. Crumb, the—, the uh, 60s underground comic artist. Uh, there's a documentary about him called Crumb, and we meet his big brother, who is also named Charles, also uh, is very influential to his little brother. And is also kind of a genius. Also is, yeah, he's a genius, and he is also mentally ill, and he also commits suicide. Charles Crumb, as opposed to 
uh, Chuck McGill, Charles McGill. Here's the guy who you think is this genius, and then you realize that he's got a brother who might be even more of a rare bird than he is, you know. And so going from Jimmy to Chuck, you know, one of Jimmy's things is is how skillful he is with employing his knowledge of the law to run these schemes. And then we realize that, you know, Chuck is probably a better lawyer uh, in almost every way than Jimmy. It's just he's got his own set of problems, you know. Anything else you wanted to bring up before we uh, come to a close and call it a season? I just want to say to people once again, remember, follow us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching. If you're hearing this, it means we found some way to get this episode out to you. Um, As usual, spread the word. If you think this is a good show, if you have friends that are watching Better Call Saul, mention to them that this might be a nice little apertif to enjoy alongside the show. And, um, yeah, I expect we'll be back in your ear holes in about a year. But I guess uh, that about wraps it up for us this week I, I and this season. And so I won't be uh, talking to you because uh, you've never mattered all that much to me. Hot talk. People can't see this, but I'm quietly kind of backing up with an incredulous look on my face, not sure what I'm supposed to say right now. And I'm kind of stopping in the next room and almost going to come forward and say something, but then I think better of it. And I just slowly walk out of this podcast and I get in my car and I drive away. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching.